This is the 343 Podcast. I'm your host, John Pronich. Welcome to the show. This episode of the 343 Podcast is made possible because of your support as a member of the 343 Coaching Education Program. It is that program which actually funds this podcast. It is the complete online resource that will help you reduce your trial and error time and give you an education that will transform you into a far better coach and help you get right to the work that matters. You learn the cutting edge training techniques that have been proven to develop better and smarter players, better and smarter teams, and better and smarter coaches. You get insider access to exclusive videos of real training sessions and real games with additional education from eBooks, audio interviews, question and answer sessions, and online forums for networking and collaboration with other coaching members. To learn more and to explore all of the benefits of being a 343 Coaching Education Program member and to help support this podcast, please visit 343coaching.com. That's the numbers 343coaching, all spelled out, dot com. Okay, so today's guest is Rishi Sagal. And Rishi is the interim commissioner of the NASL. Many of you are probably familiar with his name. If you follow any bit of American soccer politics, you have absolutely seen his name over the course of the last 18 months. Uh, but hardly anybody knows Rishi's story. In this episode, you are going to hear Rishi talk about how he went from replacement goalkeeper to USA superfan. Long before Rishi started working for NASL, he and his friends were known as some of the most passionate supporters of our national teams. When I asked Rishi for a photo to accompany this podcast, he initially sent me a professional headshot. Then, a few minutes later, he sent me two photos that do a much better job of showing just how passionate he is about American soccer. According to Rishi, USSF awarded one picture, best photo submitted by a fan. And the other picture is from a U.S. men's national team away game in 2008. And in a text message to me, Rishi said, we literally went down there just to make sure the team knew that someone was watching. Ironically, the picture is of Rishi holding an American flag with eventual foes, Sunil Galati, Don Garber, Carlos Cordero, and Dan Flynn. You can see those pictures by visiting the write-up of this podcast at 343coaching.com. In 2018, Rishi found himself sitting in a Brooklyn courtroom fighting on behalf of American soccer players, coaches, investors, and fans, like he is himself. Who was he fighting against? U.S. Soccer, the federation that he traveled around the world supporting for years. And I don't think he ever imagined facing off against these guys that he posed for a photo with almost a decade before, but it happened. Now, that same Brooklyn courtroom is where I first met Rishi. And that Brooklyn courtroom is where decisions were made that ended any possibility of NASL playing in 2018. And apparently, that Brooklyn courtroom is where U.S. soccer prefers to talk to New York Cosmos chairman Rocco Camiso. Rocco made an announcement recently that he is prepared to invest a historic amount of cash into American soccer. Carlos Cordero, U.S. soccer president, couldn't even be bothered to set up a meeting with him. That is how bad U.S. soccer leadership is at the moment. What's funny is that U.S. soccer recently made an announcement of its own about its reorganization and appointment of a historic number of chiefs. Those chiefs 
uh, appeared to be in charge of a number of different things, but apparently none are equipped to ham- handle the conversation with Rocco about quite possibly the single biggest injection of money into American soccer in history. Even after electing a new U.S. soccer president and putting a record number of cooks in the U.S. soccer kitchen, the person who ultimately got the nod to discuss Rocco's offer was Sunil Galati's right-hand man, Dan Flynn. And Dan is somebody that Rishi knows well. Uh, Dan is actually uh, someone that Rishi knows much better than he did than that photo from 2008. A series of emails between the two were made public in 2018, or in 2018, which displayed U.S. Soccer's catty and dismissive behavior towards NESL. Rishi, by all accounts, was asking for something that anyone with common sense would assume to be a given. Equal and fair representation by the governing body that oversees multiple organizations that all share a common goal. What is that goal? To grow the sport of soccer in the United States. There are so many things that have happened over the course of Rishi's time at NASL, both good and bad, and we were able to talk about a lot of it. But at one point, Rishi asked that we talk about the future. So, we did. And this episode is a very special episode to me. I am very thankful to have stolen an hour of Rishi's time, and I hope that you enjoy this conversation with interim NASL commissioner Rishi Sagal. So, we have a lot to talk about. We do. Which direction do you want to go first? I'll let you, I'll uh, let you steer you take, the ship for a second. You, 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 I want you to steer it. You tell me where you want me to go and we'll, and we'll talk, but uh, okay. I'm, I'm going to be an open book today. Okay, cool. Um, so, let's start with, tell me, tell me a little bit about who you are and, and how you kind of came to be in this position that you're in now and if you can kind of paint the picture of of the steps that led you into this interim NASL commissioner role cuz I think there was a couple uh there's a couple roles that you filled before before you filled this one as well so kind of kind of give me the the I don't know 5 minute background of Rishi Okay uh I'll try to be briefer than 5 minutes cuz I <laughs> I'm known to ramble about myself, much to uh, some people's chagrin. But uh, look, the first role that I ever served is being a fan. Well, starting out as a player, uh, I was a a, uh, a good attacking midfielder as a very small youngster. And then our goalkeeper at the time was uh, not very good. And he kept letting in the goals. And I think I was 10 years old when I made the transition to goalkeeper because I yelled at him and said he was doing a bad job. Dude, I hope I coach. hope that he doesn't hear this. <laughs> well, I hope he does. I hope he does. <laughs> the, uh, the coach said, okay, if you think you're better than him, why don't you go in goal? And then they stuck me in goal. And I was better than him. And then I kind of got stuck there. And which was fine by me too, because I didn't really fancy running around all that much. Um, so I, I was perfectly happy to be in goal and, uh, and I sort of idolized Tony Miola back in those days. So, uh, it, it was, it was fun for me, but, uh, I, I became a huge fan, uh, over the years. Uh, 
I went the first national team game I went to is uh, the U.S. Switzerland game at the 94 World Cup. And that really showed me a whole different world. I grew up in Toledo, Ohio, and so that game was in Detroit. Uh, and I remember the drive up to the stadium and seeing people on the side of the road selling tickets and just the pageantry uh, when we were walking from the parking lots to the stadium with people wearing flags as capes. Uh, and it was just something that I'd never seen before. And I was like, wow, this thing really brings people together. This is amazing. And then being in the stadium and seeing this very nascent Sam's army uh, taking foot and, you know, being dominated by the Swiss fans. And even, you know, there were probably more Americans that it felt like it sometimes who were rooting for Switzerland. There were a lot of people, you know, who were just <laughs> rooting for the sport as the spectacle. And it, it spurred something in me. And I was like, man, this is, this is amazing. This has to grow. Uh, and so I just became addicted to following our national teams, both the men and the women, frankly, from then on, uh, that turned into a trip to the 2002 World Cup, where it took my love of the sport to a whole nother level. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to go to Korea uh, and be in the, the stands when John O'Brien scored that, uh, that you know, wonder shot goal in the fifth minute against Portugal. Uh, I was at the 15th row uh, when he scored it and in the second row about 10 seconds after he scored it, uh, <laughs> falling head over heels over people. Uh, something that we should continue to do. I've been to every, I've seen every, almost, I've seen every U.S. national team game in the World Cup except for the game we lost against Belgium and, and Brazil. And even in, in South Korea, or sorry, in South Africa, when we, uh, when we scored against Algeria, a similar thing, me falling head over heels. Uh, a couple rows ahead <laughs> happened. So I've been a lifelong fan. Um, I was then went to law school uh, and started practicing corporate law, uh, working in kind of private equity fund formation, stuff that is important but not sexy uh, and didn't really have that inner passion for me. And, and, you know, one of the things I realized with all my travels for soccer, and I've seen the U.S. national team play in almost 20 countries, uh, uh, around the world and in some places that some would consider dodgy uh, is that people really embrace you when you are a fan of soccer, especially as an American, because they think that, you know, we have this reputation of only caring about American things. And, you know, when you go to countries and you show people, wait a minute, you're there to watch soccer, which is already breaking down something in their mind. And you show that you care about them. They, they sort of, open up and they show you themselves and you can have a much better conversation. So it's kind of like soccer politics, a way to bring the world together. And this kind of got in my head. Uh, and I said, you know, uh, I sort of realized that people in America, yeah, maybe not all of us have passports, but a lot of times people don't need passports or can't afford to ha have the need for a passport. Uh, so let's bring the game here and help grow the game in, the, in this country because it opens doors and it opens communities. And you see that you know, frankly, I could see it every weekend I'd go to an NASL game. You see flags from the, like every country that the players are from, uh, on, you know, in the stands. And that's just creating another awareness and creating a better community. Uh, not, you know, in that community, but also globally and opens people's mindsets. So there was this altruistic sense of me that wanted to help grow the game. Um, I, I left my law practice and I went back to school did a uh, master's in international sports law in Spain. And that uh, through that, I got introduced to a guy who uh, runs a very uh, specialized practice out of Rio de Janeiro. So I had uh, the good fortune to go and work for him in Rio. 
and uh, he's gone on to represent uh, some of the best players in the world. He represented. He was standing over Neymar when Neymar was signing his contract. He actually carried the uh, the check to uh, the Spanish Federation. The 200 uh, uh, million euro check uh, was in his briefcase uh, when <laughs> walking to the Spanish Federation. So he's, he's a, big, a big hitter. And so I've gotten some great access uh, to the sport. Uh, I got involved then with the NASL. Uh, and it's very nascent stages in, in the fall of 2010. Um, and I started as an intern. I started just actually helping them try to get organized. Uh, I was kind of between jobs. And I, you know, to be frank, I wasn't really looking to get involved with the NASL. It just sort of happened. Uh, and I said, wow, these guys are really trying to grow soccer here in, in a different way, and in, in a way that's different than MLS. And you know, not to take away what, from what MLS is doing, but I don't think MLS is enough. Uh, and so I said, you know, this is a cool opportunity and I was just helping. Uh, and it was only supposed to be for a month and then one month turned into two months and then two months turned into three months. And then I looked at my checking account and I said, Holy crap, I don't have a lot of money left. Uh, I turned to the guys and I said, well, guys, either I need to go find a job or you guys need to hire me. Uh, and so they brought me on board, uh, as essentially, you know, kind of a, a jack of all trades uh from an early stage and i was you know a lawyer but also working on business development initiatives i worked on our you know the ustream deal uh when we for the true fans of the nasl will remember back in the early days we streamed all of our games on ustream uh and, and basically all the commercial deals that we had the the ball partnerships uh and bringing all the teams on so i was heavily involved with the board of governors uh and our owners from from day one uh, and then, you know, things I was able to learn more and get more access to owners and, and do more things within the league. Uh, and then the owners, you know, they asked me to step in uh, to the commissioner's seat at the beginning of 2017. And, you know, I'm, uh, I'm competing with Bud Selig uh, to try and be the longest <laughs> serving interim commissioner of anything, um, which, you know, it doesn't really bother me. It's uh, like when you're sitting in, in the top seat frankly, you're always interim, whether it says it or not, um, you've got to perform. So uh, I have a great relationship with our owners and, uh, you know, there, there, we would have probably addressed that had other, had U.S. soccer not intervened and <laughs> taken some decisions that made life more complicated for all of us. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's kind of me in a nutshell. <laughs> that was about eight minutes, by the way. Oh boy. <laughs> No, I'm just I'm just messing with you, um, man. There, but there's so much stuff that you touched on that that we could explore. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to touch on something that you just mentioned right now because it's fresh in my mind and I didn't plan on talking about it. But you you mentioned that those leadership roles are always interim and they're always performance based, and that's really interesting that you mentioned something like that because we've had pretty much the same leadership when it comes to American soccer for until recently, right? Uh, we've had the same leadership for almost two decades, be it um, Don Garber with MLS or, or Sunil for, for us soccer, but even just like the, the cast, just the, the, the general cast of, of players or decision makers have been pretty much the same for, yeah, like two decades almost. And that seems very strange in professional sports when you think about like head coaches or players like you know you're not you're not meant to stay in one place for that long it seems like so i'm I'm curious if uh if you've ever thought about that when when you've had or in regards to your role as as n e s l commissioner at this point 
Yeah, you know, well, frankly, with my role, I think about it a lot. Uh, it keeps me up every now and then. But, uh, you know, as, as far as the leadership and the continuity in U.S. soccer, I, you know, I think there are two different things. You know, Commissioner Garber's role, like, but there have been a few central power players in the sport uh, and personalities that have been around for a long time that have been driving things forward. Uh, you know, the head of MLS and the head of U.S. soccer. Uh, you know, Commissioner Garber's done a great job with MLS and has, has served his shareholders and investors very well. And, you know, he's been... Uh, you, you can't argue with what he's done with MLS and, and where, how MLS has grown under his leadership. Um, but that's just MLS. You know, U.S. soccer has a much different mandate, or at least it should have a much different mandate. I think part of the challenge with the head of U.S. soccer, though, is that it is an unpaid position, and it came to be a position that you know encompassed so much, especially under uh, Sunil Gulati. I mean, he did a lot of things, and people who dealt with him know that. Sunil was always available. I mean, I, I said it when I first took this job. Sunil is the hardest working man uh, in the sport uh, in this country because he, he just literally doesn't stop. Um, and it's hard to replace that. It's hard for anyone to want to replace that. And, and you see that longevity, not only in his position, but also in a lot of the positions uh, within U.S. soccer and, and the U.S. soccer family in terms of the heads of the state associations uh, and in U.S. youth soccer, U.S. adult soccer. There tends to be a lot of longevity. You know, one of the interesting things that the at, um, the U.S. Soccer AGMs that, that they do every year is, at the beginning, they will have people at the beginning of the national council meeting. They'll have people stand up and they'll say, you know, how many people here is at their first AGM? How many people is at their fifth? How many people is at their tenth? How many people is at their twentieth? How many people is at their thirtieth? Well, you have a lot of people at the first. You have uh, not so many people at the thirtieth. You have a decent number of people at their twentieth. You don't have many people at the fifth, but you have a lot of people at the tenth. And so people, once they get to stay there, they tend to stay there. Uh, but people get involved and then they fall out because it's a lot of work and a lot of politics and, you know, frankly, a lot of nonsense uh, at times to cut through uh, for an unpaid job. Um, and then, you know, people who do cut through, they tend to stay in power. It's, it's not all that uh, dissimilar to politics. I mean, they, this, they are, these are political jobs. You know, that, that's it's a challenge, though, to have there's benefits to having continuity and downsides to having continuity. Downsides are that you get entrenched in positions and it makes you somewhat resistant to change and you think you're always right. You know, I, I would say that we're not in a place where being resistant to change is a good idea. We need drastic change uh, and, and not in a burn it all down mentality, but we need to be open to new ideas to really become the soccer country that we want. I mean, we're not, things have changed whether we want to admit it or not rapidly, right? The, the growth of the awareness of the game and what constitutes the highest level in this country uh, is, it's just unbelievable. I live in Miami, so I see people wearing Messi and Ronaldo jerseys, little kids wearing Messi and Ronaldo jerseys all the time. Uh, but I think that's not that unique when you look around the country. Our kids today are aware of who the best players are and what constitutes the best soccer. And, you know, that wasn't the case 15 years ago. You could get away with, you know, pushing what's local and, and telling them what's the best. Now, kids today, the information flows too fast. And so we have to figure out ways to adapt to get increasingly better, you know, in comparison to the rest of the world. Uh, and that takes new leadership and new ideas and, and the willingness to explore new ideas. 
that's an interesting point that you make. And I, I think I've talked about it on the podcast before, but I can't remember. But I saw a stat from I, God knows where saying that Odell Beckham Jr. was the, the best-selling sports jersey in the United States. And I was like, absolutely no possible way does Odell Beckham Jr. sell more jerseys than Messi and Ronaldo in the United States. So that was, I, I can't I, I can't say that I've ever, ever, ever seen a kid wearing an Odell Beckham Jr. jersey in California. But I see every single day, not because uh, uh, I'm on a soccer field every day because I'm not, but I see kids walking around wearing Messi and Ronaldo shirts every single day. So yeah. I, I, I think that's a, that's a very interesting point that you brought up about the kids knowing, you know, who, who the superstars are and they, they recognize it and the parents recognize it and, and the sports fans in general, I think recognize it as well. So yeah. um, I, I want to go back to your start with NASL and you, and you kind of mentioned that it was, you know, a one month trial at first and then two months and three months and then fast forward eight years and you're still there. Um, when did you realize that it was going to be a turbulent journey? Uh, probably from day one. Uh, you know, when we were starting this thing and uh, getting involved in some of the early on discussions and just, you know, frankly, having to, I, I was just an intern and having to tell people, I mean, I said to this is November of 2010. I said to a number of, you know, I'm making a presentation to our owners at the time. And I said, look, in five years or 10 years, you know, we want to have be in a position where some of you aren't here today. And I, I, I was, you know, young and brash at the time. And, and the way I delivered it probably wasn't the way I intended it. But what I wanted to say was if we experience, if we're growing positively, people will exit and there'll be some turnover in ownership. And that's a good thing. Um, but we had challenges. I mean, U.S. soccer made it very challenging at the outset. It, it kind of made me want to smash my head against the wall when it took as much effort as we put in to even get sanctioned. So to start the 2011 season, you know, people talk about these standards and that, oh, NASL helped create them. That's that's just, you know, to borrow our esteemed leader's uh, favorite term, that's just fake news. <laughs> uh, we didn't help craft the standards. Uh, that's an yeah, interesting we, point you're making, Rishi, because that is something that does get brought up quite a bit, and I'm 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 sure that you could identify some some key media members that that do bring that up. I won't I won't throw any names out there, but media members it, are twits. <laughs> there are some <laughs> people that are twits that think they're media members. I mean, I, it's kind of I look. I read. As I told uh, to Nipun Chopra that I read the Twitter, and I, you know I, I have more time on my hands than I'd like to admit these days, and I also have a young child that makes me sit around while he naps and you know my, my <laughs> days are not as exciting as they once were uh and so I, I you know get sucked into my phone and read twitter and I, and I don't comment that often but i when i do i'm you know like some of the stuff i just look at i'm like holy cow where do people get this nonsense and then they run with it they keep repeating it in their own echo chambers but we didn't have anything to do with the creation of the standards we wanted standards to see to, because it wasn't a little bit of a wild west. We wanted some standards. We didn't say that this is what you know these standards need to be. You know, standards should be regulating the sport. We should have standards to say this is what soccer is and what soccer isn't. We couldn't have you know having a seven aside game and it, that's professional and an eleven aside game that's professional. That would cause confusion. So that's good that there's some types of standards, but you can't. The way that these standards have been created and applied is just ridiculous. But, you know, when we were trying to get going, they, 
I, there was a meeting where U.S. soccer officials, Sunil Gulati, sitting there imposing additional standards on us just at his will. And the board's just sitting there, you know, letting this stuff go. And, and frankly, uh, you know, it, I remember it was Donna Shalala, actually, who stopped him and said, you know, that's enough. Uh, and, I, you know, I was just sitting there dumbfounded. I was like, wow, you have people who are willing to invest their own money in the game. And they're not asking you for anything. By the way, we've never gotten a penny from U.S. soccer. We get, you know, the, if you want to say we get marketing support because they uh, they list us on their website and once a year, maybe they send out a tweet. It's not like they do anything for us or we ask them to do things for us. We just want to exist. And that's the way we've always wanted to be. Yet we've had to jump through hoops uh, that have been, you know, increasingly difficult to jump through to satisfy them because they didn't want us around. That's I, I want to go back to that that conversation, I guess, where Donna Shalila stepped in, and, and can you put a timestamp on that, and maybe talk about what what were some of the things that were being presented at that table that just to you left you, like you said, dumbfounded. Uh, it was November twentieth, twenty ten. I believe November twentieth, twenty ten. Things like they were changing the standards and basically imposing additional requirements on our owners, saying with you know, respect to the letters of credit and that they had to be joint and several. And, you know, they had an issue with traffic owning three teams at the time, uh, even though at that time, I think MLS still had multiple ownership with uh, Anschutz owning a number of teams. And I mean, and these were things that were necessary, you know, and frankly, they're still necessary today for any nascent league to get off the ground. You need, it's, it's better sometimes to have fewer voices in the room that have the sources of capital to be able to drive things ahead and make decisions. And then it can, you know, it'll diversify naturally from there, but they were pushing things on us and, and trying to push us into decisions to make decisions on ourselves that would essentially, you know, tie our feet together and make it very difficult to, uh, to progress. I mean, they, they wanted us to run uphill and they put ice down underneath us and they wouldn't, you know, allow us to wear shoes with, uh, with, with studs on it. It was just nonsense. I'm going to kind of lead this into another topic that, that I wanted to bring up, but it, if that timestamp of 2010, let's see, I'm trying to remember exactly. I'm trying to remember Sunil's resume actually. So if he's proposing changes to the professional league standards that are going to directly impact the way that NASL can do business in 2010, it seems like it should be, completely completely obvious clear and obvious that that's a conflict of interest because at that time he was an employee of major league soccer or craft or soccer group and also president of u.s soccer so i i'm i'm confused on how that can even you know exist how, how can that relationship even exist for somebody like that and then how can somebody like that be presenting any type of rules that would impact other businesses yeah, I mean, it's a good question, right? I mean, the conflicts of interest that in, in Carlos Cordero has, was very vocal on it during the campaign trail. And we'll see if it comes to fruition and there'll be some changes. But uh, the conflicts of interest that have been there have just, it, they're unnatural and unnecessary, frankly. And I, you know, that's, they're central to the reason why we're in court right now. Uh, you can't allow those comp like there's no reason that U.S. soccer should have allowed those conflicts to exist, and then to go. I don't want to, you know, make. Like, I want to be clear. Sunil Galati did a lot of good for the sport too, 
He's de he's definitely done things that have hurt NASL, but he did good things for the sport uh, in terms of you know the amount of energy that he put into this thing and into growing it. But I I, I think there could have been a better way. You know, it's it, good enough is not really good enough. You know, good enough is not good enough, frankly. I, I don't know who says that good enough is good. <laughs> we want to be amazing. We want to be excellent. It's sport. Ex excellent. Excellence is the driver, not good enough. Uh, and so maybe the conflicts of interest policy was good enough back in the day, but it wasn't excellent. And it certainly uh, won't keep them out of the hot water that they're you know, in because of the, the faulty conflicts of interest. I want to, I want to get your opinion as a, as a law professional, um, because when I when I actually first met you, it was in a courtroom, in in New York, in where was that? Is that Brooklyn? It was Brooklyn, yeah. Brooklyn, okay. Um, I was super hungover, by the way. I I, I tried to hide <laughs> it. <but laughs> you hit it well. <laughs> <laughs> I remember I was sitting there. I was sitting there in the in the row behind you guys, and I I want to say that I was sitting right next to Lucky from from New York Cosmos. And at one point I just put my head down. I was like, God damn it. I'm super tired right now. How am I going to last through a whole day of, of this courtroom BS that I don't understand. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> so what, one of the things that I, I wanted to get your opinion about, because I know you do have a background in law. Um, the way that, you know, uh, an everyday layman interprets or understands conflict of interest, I think is much different than how the court interprets conflict of interest. So like when I, when I say something, when I see something like, okay, Sunil is the president of us soccer, but he works for MLS and he's making decisions that impact NASL to me, you know, that's a clear conflict of interest, but in the court of law, it's not so clear. So what, what is the, the difference or how does the court of law um, interpret conflict of interest in, in that regard? Oh, I don't want to get into interpreting New York state law. That's why we pay <laughs> our very expensive lawyers lots of money to do that. But I, I think you're right in the sense the law is driven by common sense, by the way. You know, so I'm going to do my profession a disservice here by telling everybody that we're all, all lawyers are overpaid. Uh, <laughs> frankly, they're really not. Uh, but they're, Law is based on common sense. Law wasn't designed, you know, laws, rules, and their norms that are, are socially acceptable uh, and, and, you know, acceptable under the context. It's not that law is not designed to be a mystery. If it were, that would be really silly because then nobody could figure out when they're on the right side of the law or when they're on the wrong side of the law. It's based on what, you know, a reasonable, generally all about reasonability and what a reasonable person would do in a certain circumstance. So your interpretation of a conflict of interest in that sense is 100% correct. Now, conflicts of interest exist, and there's ways to address them and avoid them and to move around them and to get past them. But, you know, here we don't think they were dealt with properly. Uh, and, and they were, you know, it, what we're going to show and what we have already shown is that there were motivating factors that pushed U.S. soccer's board members in one sense uh, to make decisions in favor of their business partner, uh, MLS, vis-a-vis -vis their the relationship with Soccer United Marketing, and, and you know that's it's it's a complicated thing to get into, but uh, you know it's it's going to be more better explained as the the court cases move along, um, and you know that's it's it's a, it is a it's you know like I said it's based on common sense, but it gets into nuances when you have to really get down to walking through those shades of gray. Uh, 
and unfortunately I do have a legal background, but I'm not the super high priced lawyer that can explain it <laughs> like uh, like our lawyers are. Yeah, it was it was interesting watching that that dance between Kessler and and USSF uh, lawyers that day that I was in the courtroom, and I only I only had the privilege of watching it for a handful of hours. Uh, I'm sure it, it got more interesting in 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 other in other proceedings, but um, I want to I want to kind of let you steer the, the next I don't know ten minutes of the conversation, so we can either continue to talk about the lawsuits. Or if you have any updates about that that you want to give people, or I know that the original reason for the for the phone call was to talk about Rocco's recent um, announcement of wanting to invest, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars into U.S. soccer and, and how that's been um, and how that's been received by not only U.S. soccer but the the American soccer fans and, and enthusiasts as well. So, yeah, I'll, well, I'll, let's talk about the future. Talking okay. about the past is. Uh... That's going to you know, look litigation is always about the past, right? So you know, people can read about the, uh, the litigation filings. There'll be more filings that come. And, uh, and our friend, uh, Mickey Turner up in Seattle will, uh, have a lot of free work to do, uh, educating everybody <laughs> on what the hell the things actually mean. Uh, but yeah, you know, let's talk about the future. And that's what Rocco's offer is about. Uh, and what he wants to do. Rocco is a very passionate person. I know you've uh, had the opportunity to, to speak with him on a number of occasions. He, uh, he, he's a true believer in the sport. He loves the sport. Uh, it runs through his blood. Um, and he wants to make a mark on it. He wants to help it grow. He doesn't see the, uh, I can tell you my interactions with Rocco, he's not somebody who thinks good enough is okay. Uh, I've never heard him say good enough is okay. He's always, he, he will push you in a way to get things to do you better, to, to do things better. And, and that's a great thing. You know, we all need people to push us. That's, that's what makes a great team is that people can push each other and do things better. And that's what we need to do with soccer in this country. So Rocker's, Rocker's offer is to inject a, a, you know, sizable amount of capital, probably one of the biggest single investments that will ever be made in this, in the sport in this in, in the history of soccer in this country uh, to help regrow the NASL, which will benefit all levels of soccer. You know, having a strong NASL, having more communities in, engaged in the sport is going to benefit everybody. And ultimately, you know, we want to get to a place where there's promotion relegation. And the, the, the only way we get there is if we have more clubs. Uh, but, you know, that there that's where the end goal is here, is to get to a place where we have promotion relegation. But Right, you know, the first step is to get the NASL uh, and get a number of clubs back on the field and competing again. And we want to do that for 2019. I want to talk about that, the idea of promotion relegation, and I want to connect that with with a comment that I saw on Twitter yesterday because I, I think people are going to twist this in a way that you know benefits their narrative and 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 puts Rocco between a rock and a hard place trying to trying to explain it maybe. But in Rocco's letter, asking for a 10-year runway to get uh, a rebooted NASL off the ground, um, in that letter, there, there's a mentioning of no poaching. And somebody had mentioned, okay, so if there's no poaching, that means that you know, there's no movement of teams. How does, how does promotion relegation work in a system where you know, there's no movement of teams? So maybe if you could give me your thoughts about the idea behind Rocco mentioning the, the no poaching and, and then the idea for how that kind of affects a, a promotion relegation 
system or, or way of doing things. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're different issues. So it's, you're right in the sense that people will try to bend things to whichever way they, they want, uh, which is a silly way to, you know, try to have discourse. Uh, it's about sometimes you need to listen more and analyze and try to work with what somebody's saying rather than trying to pick it apart. Um, but the, the poaching is really the, where we see the teams being pulled, you know, the leagues being damaged by other leagues you know, incentivizing teams to leave. Uh, and, and that causes instability. Right now we have a system of closed leagues. If we want to get to a situation, and, and, you know, you, like a team that doesn't exist in a league is, is, is difficult existence. I don't know, you get the Harlem Globetrotters, maybe the only team in the world that exists that's not in the league, right? And I don't think we want to have a bunch of Harlem Globetrotters type teams out there. Um, so we want, you need a league for the teams to play and there has to be some centralized organization. But in this country right now, we have a system of closed leagues. So we need to make sure that these leagues can continue to grow. Otherwise, each team is out there left in peril. And what's happened you know, to the Cosmos, what's happened to Miami FC, what's happened to Jacksonville uh, and, and Puerto Rico is that, you know, and frankly, Cal United and, and 1904, even though they, they, both of those never really got off the ground, is that the league was poached apart. You know, and that that's a very difficult place to make investment decisions in. And there are investments and people are willing to make investments and see returns that are risky and uncertain over the long haul. But there needs to be some stability. And that's why he wants to see U.S. soccer use its bully pulpit to help create stability, because these standards, which they say were designed to create stability, have done anything but that. You know, you can look at the history from 1995, I think, when the standards were created, to 2018, and look at how many teams have come and gone. It, it has not, the standards have been horribly ineffective in achieving their stated goal, but they have been very effective in doing what their real goal was designed to, which was to protect MLS and to grant MLS a monopoly on Division One, and, you know, to make sure there's only one Division One league. Ultimately, the, the concept of no poaching is, con, is completely consistent with the desire to get to promotion relegation. That Getting to promotion relegation is going to take all of these leagues and teams to come together. And there's going to have to be a coming together. You, you know, people talk about having promotion relegation. Why don't you just do it in the lower leagues? That's silly. You know, at, at the end of the day, you've got to be able to aspire to the top. That's what causes the incentive. Uh, that's what causes, creates the incentive to invest and to grow clubs and to grow communities. And there's, you know, money has to be invested and people have to risk capital uh, to, to make things move up. Uh, it takes a lot of resources to do that. And that's okay, that's not a problem. There's tons of capital that's willing to be invested in the sport here, tons of it. But there needs to be a logical way for it to grow. And that's what a system of promotion relegation will do. And I don't need more proof than to look around the world. You know, you look at MLS club valuations, they're a fraction of what club valuations are around the world. <laughs> you know, frankly, it's just, it's, it's, and, and it's not a slight on MLS. It's, it's not a slight on what they've done. It's just, we can do better and they can do better. I saw, I saw something recently that talked about a tran like a, a one player transfer fee and, and somebody questioned if MLS as a whole had reached that 
player's amount for the, a transfer fee. So like the collective unit of MLS, their total transfer fees, did that equal up to that one player's transfer fee in a calendar year? And my my brain has to go to no because we, we don't engage in the in the international market really or the way that the, that the international transfer market works. So that was funny to me. Um, yeah. Uh, I want to... There's there's a couple there's a couple more points that I want to get to about Rocco's letter. Um, one of those being, and this this question has been burning in my brain. I, I'm and I'm actually super happy to to get a chance to finally ask you. So, up until the vote happened for or at the last AGM, NASL did have a seat at the table and a voice uh, in inside the. I'm assuming inside the boardroom, but maybe you can correct me where, where that voice was. Um, now that that vote has kind of passed and NESL is not operating at the moment, does NESL still have a voice at the table? Uh, that remains to be seen. I think we do. Uh, U.S. soccer hasn't really communicated to us what, what our status is, but I believe that we, we're still a member of U.S. soccer, so we should still have a vote. Now, I don't know you know, we have such a small influence on the pro council, the pro council may decide to take a, uh, its own decision to minimize our voice even further, uh, and may take away our, our vote. Uh, I don't know. Uh, it's all kind of to be seen and it seems the rules get written, uh, sometimes as we go. Um, but I, I don't have a great answer on that. You know, we never, in terms of a voice at the table, let's be clear. We've never had a voice at the board. Now, I've presented to U.S. Soccer's board a number of times over the course of the last year, and the NASL, frankly, has been given the opportunity to make presentations in front of the U.S. Soccer board on, on a handful of occasions, largely protesting the way that we don't have uh, more representation in the pro council and more voting strength and how it's all stacked so that basically any decision that the pro council can make uh, is, needs to be blessed by MLS. And it's not like the pro council actually makes real decisions or does much. There's two two things that you know the pro council really does. One is establish the transfer windows, uh, and then and, and make a recommendation to U.S. Soccer's board on, on what the transfer window should be. And then the second is on picking the two uh, pro council representatives to the U.S. Soccer board, uh, and that's really you know the substance of the business is, and that's where the business really happens. The U.S. Soccer board. Uh, and so, you know, and it's important to be part of the board. You know, they, they love to tout, tout their transparency and say that, you know, hey, we make all of our board meetings open to the public uh, and our minutes are posted online. Well, I encourage people to go through their minutes and look at, look at where does a business occur? Business all occurs in executive session and it's a hidden, hidden from the public, hidden from the membership. The members don't even know what goes on in executive session. We've asked for what, what goes on and we've been told we're, they're not going to give it to us because I think it's, we're trying to subvert uh, discovery. It's, it's, you know, it's just silly. It's not, uh, that's not what we're trying to do. We're just trying to know what the hell goes on in this organization that we belong to and why we've gotten screwed so badly. Um, yeah, the the minutes are, are interesting. I, I actually went back at one point last year and I looked for, I think, two years worth of minutes. I looked through two years worth of minutes and there was nothing substantial. It was just all boring shit. Like, like who cares about this type of stuff? Like you guys called roll and gave like a, like a, I think Dan Flynn gives like a, you know, 
uh, finance update uh, in in most of the meetings. But other than that, there's there's nothing of substance there. And the only time that I saw something was from a a, a member that you know raised a question. And I think oh, if I remember right, they said that they would handle it in the closed session. So they would handle that in there, or there was plans to handle that in the executive session. If I remember the way that I read it, I, I think that's how, how that went down. So it's like, even though somebody tried to bring up something in the public forum, they, they immediately moved it to a behind closed doors uh, conversation. So that, that was a real bummer. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, and you know, frankly, the public has a right to know about what's going on. This is our soccer, right? This is our national teams that, that are affected here. And it's it, the Federation has a big role to play in, in setting the tone of what soccer should be in this country. Uh, and obviously, there's lots of people who care. Uh, now, how much time they're willing to commit and how much resource they're willing to commit to protect the, their investment, whether their investment is $250 million, $150 million, $5 million, or simply their time in terms of playing on the field and you know the, the registration fees they pay, that's still an investment. They have a, they have a vested interest in, in making sure that the, the, the game is being run properly. And not everybody has the time to you know, go sit in a board meeting and, and be part of those, uh, those proceedings but through representation, you would hope that there is effective governance. And I, you know, would say that I don't think we have effective governance right now. One of the f- most funny things about uh, the minutes that I remember reading through was the locations of the meetings. It's like sometimes these were like destination vacations almost for, for some of these guys like Hawaii and Mexico, like nice places sometimes. That, that, that was pretty eye-opening to me. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, not, it's not a bad thing to be on the U.S. soccer board. <laughs> right. Um, Okay, I, I, I really want to get to one last thing, um, and that is Rocco's, and, and, and I don't want this to seem like you're talking on, on Rocco's behalf. I'm really just trying to get your opinions about the letter that Rocco wrote. Uh, I, you're, you're probably one of the people that is most familiar with the way that his brain is operating at the moment and, and the, the genesis of some of these ideas and, and uh, the intentions behind them. So that's the reason why I'm asking these, these types of questions. Um, but I'm, I'm really curious to get your, your thoughts on the inclusion of the open bidding process for, uh, like the, the rights to the U S national team and, and, and other kind of media rights, I believe. Um, and then Rocco's offer to buy them. And then specifically, the thought that that came to my mind right away when I saw that, when I read that, was doesn't that make Rocco part of the problem that he's trying to fix? If he now owned New York Cosmos and then owned the U.S. Men's National Team TV rights, doesn't that make him part of the problem that he has been experiencing over the course of the last 18 months? Yeah, it could, potentially, right? Depending on how the deal is structured. Rocco's intention is not to create you know, a new soccer United marketing to be, you know, to replace soccer United marketing and replace MLS with NASL and, 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 uh, you know, uh, I, and, and Rocco's new promotions company. Um, but uh, I mean, on the other side of that, he, what he wants to do is make sure that U S soccer is getting full value, which we don't think it is right now for its rights. It, they're not, you know, it's pretty clear. You look at the TV ratings and I think, somebody did a really good analysis. I think Stefan Szymanski did it uh, on 
you know how much people are watching versus the number of games and where the 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 real attention is going towards soccer on TV in this country. And our national team games dramatically outperform any of our domestic leagues uh, on on TV. And yet they're not getting the same value. You know, they're not getting enough value out of the, the current TV deal. So Rocco, one, he wants to make sure that there's that U.S. soccer is getting enough money and the, the right amount of money that they should be getting. But ultimately, he doesn't want to be involved in everything. Look, he, Rocco doesn't want to own more than one team either. Rocco wants to get to a place where he can compete and have his club and be and have other stable clubs that he can compete against in a fair landscape. I, you know. Rocco's all about fairness. I, I can't stress that enough. He wants to see fairness. And it's for a guy like Rocco to see the amount of unfairness that takes place. And it's it's not whiny unfairness, okay? So people's, Mr. Twitter people out there, just don't, don't <laughs> react like that. It's not whiny fairness. It's not whininess. It's, if you were in his shoes and you were in our shoes, and you would see the amount of money and the amount of work that goes into building a business and then have the rug pulled out from under you, you would say it's unfair. And it's, you wouldn't just whine about it. You would say, holy cow, this is unfair. These are not s- simple people that we're dealing with, right? Rocco is not just uh, somebody who's having his, uh, his, his toy taken away and, and now he's crying, much, much to the way that, you know, you, you were in the room, uh, U.S. soccer's lawyers tried to paint it and it's that, right? I mean, like, shut up. That's not what happened here, okay? That's not it at all. These are really sophisticated business people who've dealt with, you know, being told no before and being and having to deal with difficult situations. But what they can't deal with is patent unfairness and, and corruption. And that's what he, the way he sees it. Uh, and, you know, frankly, I think everybody, if people will open their eyes to thinking that, wait a minute, what if they're right? What if the NASL is right? That this is unfair, that this system is not working properly. Just think about it from a different perspective. What if they're right? Maybe you'll look at the court filings and you'll look at the court case and you'll say, okay, wait a minute, there's something here. Uh, And that's what people need to do. And, you know, fortunately, we don't need to do that with everybody. Uh, You know, it needs to be done with the judge and and a jury. That's a, to me, that's a a very interesting point because lately I've been practicing this thing where I, I, I try to write down my thoughts instead of actually tweeting them. Um, and so one of, one of the things I've been thinking about lately, and I'm, I'm trying to formulate this thought better, but is this idea that the people that are really motivating me at the moment are the people that don't even know that I'm working on their behalf. So the people like you just mentioned that don't understand yet that, yeah, this NASL could be right. You know, the NASL could be fighting the fight that they just don't understand is right yet. And to me, that's, that's one of the most motivating factors. And I see a lot more people, actually, I only see people moving in one direction in, in this movement. I don't see people leaving the camp of, oh yeah, we need to open up soccer for the entire country and, and switching to, no, it needs to be all closed off. I see people moving the other way of, of, you know, soccer right now is very closed off. It needs to be more open and, and accessible to everybody. So there's really only movement in one direction. And so that motivates me knowing that there's just more people that are going to be coming in to, uh, I'll say our camp, I guess, is, is a good way to put it for right now. So, yeah, look, I mean, it's it, the idea here is, like I said, is not to burn everything down. Right. And, uh, 
it's to create more opportunities for more people with the means of Rocco and more communities to get engaged and get engaged in a pathway that connects them to the highest level. I, I fundamentally don't understand what the resistance is to that. It's hard. It's, it makes you slam your head against the wall sometimes. You know, there's a, that old saying, if you, if you love it, let it set it free. <laughs> what happens if we do that with soccer? If we all love it and we all love the money that comes from it, let's set it free and watch. We watch our dollars go, set them free. They will come back with their friends. It will be amazing. <laughs> uh, we just need to empower the game. The ball wants to do the work for us. You know, I mean, you're a coach. Let's just talk about it. Let's bring it back. This is what I love about the sport. What I love about sports is that you literally can figure out all of your life from just paying attention to the ball. And there's one of the guys I, I love in soccer uh, the most. I would adopt him as my father. Uh, my real father's still alive, so sorry, Dad. But I would adopt Hank Steinbrecher <laughs> as, as my father. And he's got this great saying, just get the ball right and everything else will take care of itself. And it, you, you just pay attention to the ball and let the ball do the work. Let the sport do the work for us and just get out of its way. We will be just fine. And it kind of seems like that's the way that that Hank and certain people in the late 90s or mid 90s, late 90s, early 2000s wanted to go. And that was really the last time from from my understanding that there were two opposing voices um, kind of competing for who was going to run. Or, or decide the direction of, of U.S. soccer. And I think it was like 1998 through like 2002 where there were actually people running for, you know, the different positions and, and there was, you know, votes happening instead of just, you know, renewing the, the last person's presidency or vice presidency. And I, I, I think I admitted when I interviewed John Mata that I didn't know much about Hank or about John or about a lot of the other cast at, at that time. Um, but after after I got off that phone call with, with John Mata, I went back and I and I looked at uh, at some of the information from that from that era, and and there were people that were you know presenting different ideas, and those people ultimately got pushed out, and that that was really discouraging to me. And and the people that pushed them out have, you know, th- those are the ones that are still running the show to this day. And in, in in my opinion, if if I'm looking, if I'm an outsider looking in, of course, but. Um, yeah, so it, it the name Hank Steinbrecher keeps coming up as a as a good name in in U.S. soccer history, and and I I still need to and, and want to learn more about you what should he's talk done to, to the game. Everybody would do well to have a conversation with Hank Steinbrecher, not just about the game, but he's one of this rare uh, type of person in business where even when you disagree with them you have full respect for that person and you know they have full respect for you. That's awesome. Maybe, Rishi, if I can ask you a favor, can you connect me with him? <laughs> I will. Awesome. I will. Um, let's, uh, I, I want to ask you just one one last question. You can take this however you want, but um, what what do you think people need to know at this moment? That Rocco's serious and that we're serious. And we want to grow the game. We want to do the right thing. We've given opportunities to almost a thousand players uh, over the last seven years. We want to continue to give opportunities to more players. There's, 
50 some players that in the MLS right now that played uh, in, in the NASL. Uh, you look at coaches, Gio Savarisi's there. Uh, Martin Rennie coached in, in uh, MLS before. And, and, you know, there's a number of guys who've gone both ways on the assistant coach side. Marco Santos obviously is coaching at the LAFC right now. Uh, the referees, uh, Robert Sabiga, uh, Ted Uncle, uh, Marcos de Oliveira did a, a game this past weekend. Uh, these guys cut their teeth, and he did the Orlando City game. These guys cut their teeth in the NASL. We've con- made huge positive contribution to the sport in this country. You know, the Open Cup took on a whole other dimension. Uh, and why I, I, we're not villains. We absolutely are not villains. That, I, there's no need to, to to view us as villains. So give us a chance and give us another chance when we ask for it. And we're putting our own money into this, our own time, our own resources. We're just asking for people to get out of the way and let us kick the ball. It's a, I think a good, a good place to end it there, Rishi. And I appreciate you setting the or setting aside like an hour to, to come and talk to me. I hope I asked some questions that you haven't been asked or asked before. Yeah, the only people who ask me about myself that much are, uh, are were, were my family. Now they know not to. So I think I will never get asked that question again by anybody. <laughs> hey, what I can do is I can just I can clip that out and just se- just send you that file of you talking to yourself. So anytime anybody asks you, just send them that file. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> All right, man. Well, I look forward to catching up with you again, and and maybe we can give everybody an update um, in the next few months. You can come back on and. And tell us how things are going for for you, for Rocco, for NASL, and, and just American soccer from your perspective in, in, in the next few months. Absolutely. Would love to. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the 343 Podcast. Thank you to Rishi Sagal for coming on the show and for talking about things that matter in American soccer. Things that we all need to continue to educate ourselves about and continue to follow and continue to talk about. We need to keep the conversation going. If you would like to find more episodes of this podcast, you can find all of that on 343coaching.com. And that is also where you can find more about the membership program that actually helps to support and fund this podcast. Here is Colton Bly to talk a little bit about his experience with that membership program. Like you have to, if you want them to adopt a behavior, adapt a behavior, you have to rehearse and you have to choreograph. And when I, like I said, when I first heard that from Brian in the Brian in the introductory course, I'm like, that makes so much sense. Seeing his uh, at the time Chivas players doing their building out of the back choreography. And then all of a sudden that changing to a game clip where they are doing that and they are having success and they are able to, you know, break lines into the midfield or pull the opponent out of shape, whatever it works. And that's one thing that I've taken and not just in the form of building out of the bag, but also in the attacking patterns and even in the defensive moment of the game, uh, running through 
rehearse movements on how our how we press when we're defending in the attacking third or how we defend as a block and where all players need to be to keep our you know horizontal and vertical compactness in the mid in the middle third of the field when we're defending so the benefits of rehearsing these things is huge you see it translate to the game and it helps your team you can find that program plus more by visiting 343coaching.com all right until next time have a good one.